Well, good morning. Let's make a deal. I'm going to spend most of my time looking at the camera so you don't feel picked on uh, or preached at this morning, because uh, it looks like most of you are online. Let me just say it that way. Uh, it's funny, though, so many of you are sitting in the same spots you always sit in. <laughs> We're creatures of habit, aren't we? You know, I was at a pastor's conference a couple years ago. It's Moody Pastor's Conference, and Joel Stoll made the comment. He's like, I've been doing this conference year after year after year after year, and the same pastors come back again and again and again. He's like, you guys sit in the same spots just like your stubborn people. <laughs> it's so great. We're so thankful Christina is here. Welcome, Christina and Irvin, and we're thankful for them and their ministry. Uh, thankful that um, she brought up, I, you know, the, their ministry and the way that they've uh, extended their hours. I remember last year she brought that need up um, to us as we were looking for projects for our year-end offering, and she talked about how they had extended their hours and how they were eating their savings. They had done that by faith, and we thought, we've got to share that with you. And so we shared that need with you as a church family, and by God's grace, as a church family, you stepped up to the tune of $40,000. And that's what she is referencing of um, how this church has blessed them and helped sustain them in their extension of their hours. So we're so thankful uh, for our partnership with their ministry like that. Also thankful for Kids Own volunteers serving today, even today. So thankful for them. Um, this morning we're talking about whether or not we act like Jesus is the answer. So a lot of times we have in our mind that Jesus is the answer. We might have like, like if we're taking a multiple guess test, multiple choice, multiple guess uh, test, we might pick is Jesus answer the answer yes or no. We might pick yes, but I'm not, I don't know if we always live like it. So as we move into the new year, we want to make sure our actions are lining up with our beliefs. So before we jump into the text, let me go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can worship you. And Lord, I pray that you would stand in front of me while I'm in front of them, that you'd talk over me while I talk to them. Lord, do this for your glory and our good and the sake of the world that you love. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. Okay, let's call time out. How would two blind men follow Jesus? Well, it'd be hard. That's the first thing to say. How would two blind men follow Jesus? My observation is that people do what they really want to do. And if they really want to do something, they find a way to do it. 
And how did two blind men follow Jesus? Well, they really, really wanted to follow Jesus. They really believed Jesus was the answer to their problem, and so they found a way to follow Jesus. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. I'm going to call that the blind man's prayer later on. So if we bring that up later on, this is the blind man's prayer. Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Well, how did they do that? Well, they really wanted to do that. I don't know how they did it, but they find a way because people find a way to do what they really want to do. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Fascinating. After they have followed him, they found a way to follow him. They found a way into the house. Jesus still asks, do you believe that I am able to do this? Why? I mean, maybe Jesus just wants to hear, wants them to hear them say this. Like, yes, I believe. And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And truly, you see their faith come out in their action. They believe Jesus is the answer, and they're putting that belief into action, finding a way to follow Jesus, because people do what they really want to do. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. I mean, how would they not? They once were blind, and now they see, and people are going to ask, Bro, you were blind yesterday, and now you're walking around and you can see. I think Jesus doesn't want them spreading the news that he is the Messiah because he knows that they have no idea what it means for him to be the Messiah. They, in their minds, will have one definition of Messiah. The people in that region will have a definition of Messiah, which is extremely different than Jesus' definition of Messiah. They were all expecting a Messiah, like a savior king, that would conquer Rome and lead them to all kinds of victory, and Jesus came to conquer sin and death, and and they just didn't know that yet. And so I think this is the motive of Jesus saying, don't don't tell anyone. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So this guy has a demon, and the demon thinks it's funny to keep him from talking, and so the guy can't talk. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And for all the world, it reminds us of the kingdom coming in Isaiah chapter 35, when the blind see and the mute sing. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Okay? So seeing is like a motif in this text, because the blind men... See? And now the crowds see, and in just a minute we'll see the Pharisees are willfully blind. But before we see the willful blindness of the Pharisees, let's think back in through chapter 8, because remember Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, 
and then there's a narrative section, and then in chapter 10, there'll be another teaching section where Jesus will teach the disciples before he sends them out on mission. So eight and nine are a block of narratives with teaching on either side of it. And so what have, what have we seen? Well, the centurion can see that Jesus is the answer. The centurion has faith. It's almost a mirror of this statement where Jesus says of the centurion, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Like the crowd just saying, never was anything like this ever seen in all Israel. So it's kind of, a, kind of a mirror of each other. Centurion can see that Jesus is the answer. The demons can see that Jesus is the Son of God. The tax collectors can see that Jesus is different and is the answer. The synagogue ruler who comes to Jesus and says, my little girl has died, he can see that Jesus is the answer. The bleeding woman that pushes her way through the crowd just to touch the corner of Jesus' garment, she can see that Jesus is the answer. The two blind men that find their way to Jesus, they can see that Jesus is the answer. And now even the crowds can see that Jesus is the answer. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Hey, if blind people can see what you can't, it's not a good sign for you. You know, if even the crowds can see what you won't see and you're one of the spiritual leaders, it's a bad sign for you. If the Roman centurions can see what you can't see, it's a bad sign for you. Like, like, you're working at it at this point. Like, they're, they're trying to not see at this point. So, here's what I've been trying to tell you about, about Jesus. This is one thing that I want you to know about Jesus this morning, is that he is the answer. Jesus is the answer. So, so in Matthew 8 and 9, the, the two chapters, we've seen Jesus forgive sin. Like he is the answer to sin. And what society might tell you is what you need to do is you just need more affirmation or maybe you need more acceptance or what you need is to blame your parents because it's all their fault anyway. Or you need to blame society or you need to blame this or blame them. Or... Look, that's not the answer. Jesus forgiving your sins is the answer. What we've seen in Matthew 8 through 9 is that Jesus is the answer, that he forgives sins. What we've seen in Matthew 8 and 9 is that Jesus is the one who heals. I mean, we look in all, these, all different spots for healing, but Jesus is the one that finally and fully heals. And we finally and fully have this hope in the resurrection that one day our bodies will be made completely utterly, terrifically new. We have this hope that not only does Jesus forgive sins, not only does he heal, but Jesus is the one who raises the dead. And so we have hope beyond the grave, that this life is not the end, that Jesus will return again and make all things new, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and all things will be completely restored, and that things will be right and whole and perfect, and that will go on forever. 
So we don't have to place our hope and our faith in stuff that is going away, in the ashes and dust that everything is becoming. Jesus is the answer. Jesus gives us direction and hope and power for life. And I think, I think probably everyone here and probably just about everyone online would say, yes, I already know that. Duh. So let me say, okay, if we know that Jesus is the answer, if we have that down already, then let me ask a couple questions on whether or not we're living like this is true. Remember, that? that's what we said in the beginning. We're going to ask whether or not we are living like this is the case. So the first question I have on whether or not we're living like this is true is, are we putting effort into following Jesus? So am I making an effort to follow him? So like the blind men made an effort to follow Jesus. How do blind men follow Jesus? I don't know, but they work hard at it. And so they do embarrassing things, like they put themselves out and at risk. They find a way to follow Jesus. Am I making an effort to follow Jesus? Am I making an effort? So I think there is an important distinction here that it might help you to see. So Dallas Willard, um, in The Great Omission, think of the Great Commission, um, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. This is a great omission. He says we're not doing a very good job at it. He writes, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. So when you think of the leper who comes to Jesus at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 8, he makes a lot of effort to get to Jesus. He does things that are socially crazy to get to Jesus. There's effort, but he's not coming in there trying to barter for something, trying to make a trade with Jesus or purchase something from Jesus. He's just coming there to beg. And Jesus heals him. You think of the bleeding woman that pushes her way through the crowds. She's not coming to barter. She's not coming to trade. She's not coming to purchase. She's coming to beg. And Jesus rewards her with his healing and his grace. You think of the centurion or the synagogue ruler that came to Jesus and asked him to heal the people that they loved. They weren't coming to barter or trade or beg or earn. They were making an effort to beg, just to ask, because that's all they could do. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. I've found that in my life, the more poor in spirit I am, so if you think back with me to the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning of repentance, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the more important, the more the more poor in spirit I am, the more effort I put forth in trying to find access to God's grace, putting myself in position to receive God's grace. So the, the more I am like aware of sin is bigger than me, stronger than me, and better than me. And it is. Sin is bigger than Nathan, stronger than Nathan, better than Nathan. And when Nathan really is facing with this, he really throws himself at the mercy of God. I'm like, just come back to God again and again and again and again and again. I put forth a lot of effort. Say, God, please help me with this. I'm not begging. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to earn. I'm not trying to barter. I'm not trying to trade. I'm just begging God for help. 
And I'm going to his word because I think there is power and life in here that is beyond me. That is what I don't have. And through the power of the Spirit, he makes it work in my life. And it helps me. I pray because I really believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. I pray because I really believe he has power that I don't. I pray because I really believe he'll help. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. It is expected that you'll put forth effort in becoming a disciple. You won't make a lot of progress in your spiritual life without any effort. If someone were to follow you around for a month, And I'll make eye contact with the online group, so it's a little less awkward. than If someone were to follow you around for a month, how would they catalog and list your efforts in following Jesus? Like, where would they see you putting in effort, making it a habit? To follow Jesus? Where would they see spiritual exercise and spiritual effort? Because you access God's grace. Grace is opposed to earning, it's not opposed to effort. Okay? So, <clears throat> number one, if Jesus is the answer, am I making an effort to follow him? Number two, who am I inviting to? To follow Jesus, or who am I bringing to him? So, did you notice, did you guys notice, you that are here, did you notice um, who they brought to Jesus? A guy that was oppressed by a demon. Let me tell you, if you can bring someone who is oppressed by a demon, and other places there are people who are actually possessed by demons that are brought to Jesus, you can bring your friends to church. Like, here's the rule. Because you might be wondering, like, can I invite them to church or can I not invite them to church? Because, uh... Let's let's put it this way. Here's, Here's the rule for you. If you could bring them to Jesus, you can bring them to church. Church is the body of Christ... Church is the physical presence of Jesus on earth. If you can bring them to Jesus, you can bring them to church. Now you might be like, well, I don't know. My grandparents might be a little racist. And I'm afraid they might say something a little racist at church. What's the rule? If you can bring them to Jesus, you can bring them to church. You might be like, well, my grandkids are super misbehaved. And they might run around, they might bump into somebody, and they might cause a scene, and it might be a little embarrassing. What's the rule? If you can bring them to Jesus, you can bring them to church. You might be like, well, some of my friends, they dress kind of, oh. What's the rule? If you can bring them to Jesus, you can bring them to church. 
You're like, oh, my neighbor might drop an F-bomb on the way into church when he's asked about the weather. What's the rule? If you can bring him to Jesus, you can bring him to church. So I thought what I'd do is just kind of give you some options of here's what's coming up that you can invite him to. So next week, we're going to do a um, couple baptisms and um, receive communion and do church membership. And when we do baptisms, people share their testimonies and they say, this is how I came to follow Jesus. That might be a good Sunday to invite some people to church. Then we'll explain the gospel when we take communion. We'll explain the gospel again when we bring people into church membership. The Sunday after that, we'll see Jesus' heart as we finish up Matthew chapter 9, and we'll see the way Jesus looks at people. The Sunday after that, uh, I'll, have, I'll be just coming back from the marriage retreat, and so I'll be talking about marriage from a Christian point of view, and probably talking about how to train for a better marriage, and that'll come from a Jesus-loving-us, um, uniting-us perspective. Uh, the Sunday after that, we plan to kick off a study in the book of Colossians, and we'll go over the gospel every week as we talk about what it is to be mature in Christ. And then, of course, we're getting a little further out now, because I don't want to give you too many dates, but getting a little further out on 331, which feels like tomorrow, is the Easter Children's Choir Sunday. So if you want to plan for that, invite somebody to that, that's always a, a fun Sunday to invite people to as well. But I, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, I want to invite everybody to church. Well, I'm for that. Bring everybody to Jesus. But sometimes when we say, I'm going to invite everybody, we end up inviting nobody. Because you're not really focused on anybody. So who would you like to bring to Jesus? And maybe, maybe focus on that and invite them to one of these upcoming Sundays. So we said, if Jesus is the answer, as we would affirm that he is, number one, am I making an effort to follow Jesus? Number two, who am I bringing to Jesus? So if I really believe Jesus is the answer for them, then maybe I should bring them. And then number three, how long has it been since we have prayed the blind man's prayer? So my question is, um, who from this passage do you think back through this passage. So we saw the two blind men that followed Jesus crying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And then we saw the person or the people who brought the demon-oppressed man to Jesus who was mute. And then we saw the crowd say, wow, we've never seen anything like this. And then you see the Pharisees say, you know, he does this with power, but obviously it's bad, dark, evil power because he does this by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. My question is, who do you think needed mercy the most in this text? Well, I mean, I think the Pharisees needed mercy the most in this text. They're the ones that are truly blind because they can't see what the blind men can see. They can't see what the crowds can see. They can't see what is obvious to everyone else. But here's the thing. They don't know they're blind. 
I was trying to think of an example of a time in my life when I've been willfully blind. And I couldn't. Because I'm blind to it. I don't even know the stuff I'm blind to. If I knew I was blind to it, I wouldn't be blind to it. You probably don't know the stuff you're blind to either. And so we need to pray, Lord, have mercy on us. This is the beginning. And again, I have this picture up for those of you who are with us through the Beatitudes. If you weren't with us through the Beatitudes, it's okay. Um, you get the idea. The, the I know that I need mercy is the very beginning of the Christian life. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I, I know I can't do this by myself is the very foundation, the very starting point. This is the passage that Brendan preached on when he pointed out how Jesus said that he came as a doctor for the sick. For those who know they need help and the blind men knew they needed help. The people who were bringing the mute man to Jesus who was oppressed by a demon, they knew they needed help. The Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus' help. And so my question is, man, do you and I need, do we need to pray the blind man's prayer? And, and if we haven't, if we, it's been years since we've asked God for mercy. What does that say about us? I mean, is there hope for Pharisees? The people that are like, he's doing that wrong because he's not like us, because he makes us look bad, or, or whatever they're thinking. Like, is there hope? Well, remember the Apostle Paul said that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And there's a time when he's breathing out threats and anger and violence on his way to persecute Christians, and Turns out Jesus shows up and blinds him with light. So this is what the Pharisees were saying in Matthew 9. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And so when Jesus shows up and blinds, the, he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And he, and he blinds him. So he gets up and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Do you see that when Jesus stops the stop Saul, this is an act of mercy to blind him. Because as Jesus blinds him, now he can see that he is spiritually blind. And so he spends three days blind, sitting in the dark. He fasts, he prays, and at the end of the three days, the Lord tells Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul and pray for him, and he does. And when he does that, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And so he gets up and he gets baptized. And as soon as he can, he goes and preaches that Jesus is the Christ. It's a good thing. It's a good thing Jesus is the answer for Pharisees too. And when the Apostle Paul is, is writing about this, he says, though formerly, man, I'm so glad that God gives us a formerly. You know, like you don't have to be what you were. Though formerly I was, God gives a past tense. I mean, you can have a past tense. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I acted in, ignorantly in unbelief. Here's what we're saying this new year. 
this new year, just remember that Jesus is the answer for everyone in the story. Whether they're the two blind men or the people bringing the mute man or the Pharisees, Jesus is the answer for everyone in the story. So what we want to do is actually align our practices with our beliefs and act like Jesus is the answer by putting forth effort to follow him, by bringing people to him, and by asking for his mercy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, and Lord, I pray that you would pull us towards yourself today by your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.